Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Good to see you all. I miss you when I'm not with you. It's always great to be with you. Can I just stand here and look at your faces for a minute? Would that be all right? Um, We are beginning a series, and I'm going to get to kick it off today, and I'm going to talk to you about a topic. It's about change, but I'm going to talk to you about a topic that I feel like the best way to, um, to entitle it is to call it artificial maturity. It's a picture, doesn't it? Over 150 years ago, something happened in America that you all heard about. It was January 1848 when James Wilson Marshall was strolling out next to a sawmill in Southern California. He went down to the stream just next to the sawmill and he noticed something glistening in the water. It was gold. He wasn't sure it was gold at first, but it glistened and it looked like it might be. So he dug it up and washed away the sand and took it in and tested it out. And sure enough, it was gold. And it was at that point when word got out, the California gold rush was on. Remember reading about this in your history books? Tens and tens of thousands of people went out west to strike it rich, some rich overnight. But you know the part of the story that you never hear people talking about, don't you? Most of them found nothing. Or perhaps even worse, many of the people found something that they thought was real, and it wasn't real. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? It was called fool's gold. Fool's gold looked like the real thing. It glistened like gold. It even felt like gold. But when they picked it up and strung through the sand and finally tested it out, it was worthless. It just looked like the real deal. And I'm suggesting today that we live in an age right now where it's easy to make artificial anything, fools anything. Think about it with me. There's artificial sweeteners, right? In case you don't want sugar, you can have something that tastes like sugar, but it's not really sugar. There are artificial turf, artificial grass. Ladies, artificial fingernails, right? Hmm? Artificial flavorings. There's even artificial money. We call it counterfeit money. It's really worthless, but it looks like the real deal. And by the way, with artificial money, counterfeit money, have you ever noticed you don't counterfeit a $1 bill, you counterfeit a $100 bill. You counterfeit what's most valuable. Keep that in files for later. We live in a day, as I just mentioned, where you can make a generic brand, if you will, of almost anything valuable. And I'm saying maturation, real authentic maturity, is so valuable yet so rare because the artificial thing is everywhere today. Can I just give you a couple of pictures that will get you on board really fast right now? Um, let's start with kids. We won't end with kids. We're going to end with us, but let's start with kids. We live in a day where you might know a family and they've got an eight-year-old son or daughter, and that eight-year-old knows all of his math tables. He can download the latest software on his computer, and all the adults around him go, my, 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 my. What a mature little boy. Maybe, maybe not. That same kid at 16 years old might not be able to look an adult in the eye and have a conversation. Do you know these people? Teenagers? Okay. So there was one category that was really advanced, but the others, not so much. It was artificial. It looked like maturity, but it really wasn't. And then there's adults. Oh my goodness gracious. You know them, don't you? They can be well-read, They can be well-educated with master's degrees and PhDs, well-networked. But then when it comes to the fundamentals that make life work, basic life skills, they're missing. 
They can't keep a family together, a marriage together, their life together. In other words, it's high IQ but low EQ, which is a greater predictor of success in life. It was artificial. It looked real. looked real. But it wasn't. And then there's those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, people that are good people, that follow Jesus. At least we say we do. We can know our Bibles inside and out. We memorize the Scripture by God. We, we have little index cards with Scripture verses on them. But we look at them every traffic signal when we're driving along. The, we know the Bible. We know the worship courses, all the lyrics. We know all the jargon. We know how to say praise God. And yet you look at our lives, and there may be no fruit at all, no evidence that we look any different from those people out there that don't say they follow Jesus. Anybody seeing what I'm saying? And I see it in my own life. It looks like a real thing. In fact, we facade, we masquerade as mature, as, as advanced, and yet it was just stuff we had up here in our noggin. It wasn't really real. This term artificial maturity actually has a definition. In fact, I just released a book called Artificial Maturity. It's in bookstores, but let me define it for you right now so you know exactly what I mean when I use the term artificial maturity. I think artificial maturity is a result of two realities that are existing simultaneously in this day we live in. In fact, look at the screens. Artificial maturity is a result, number one, of the fact that we are overexposed to information far earlier than we're ready. I mean, think about the kids that are growing up in this world that we're living in today. The kids over the last 20 years. They've been able to go online. They've been able to email the President of the United States since they were five years old. They go online, average age at three and a half years old. You know this, don't you? At four years old, they're surfing websites, getting information. Are their emotions ready for that information? Probably not, but they're getting information way earlier than they're ready. <laughs> My daughter, Bethany, um, her first year out of college taught preschool. So she was with four-year-olds every day. She had funny stories for me every single day. She said, Dad, one day my four-year-olds were in the class and she said, I looked over and I saw one little boy. He had a regular hardback book in his hand and he was doing this to the cover. <laughs> Trying to get that iPad to move. What's going on here? This book doesn't work, you know? And she said, no, sweetheart, you have to actually have to open the book and turn the pages and look at the pictures. Oh my gosh, it's old-fashioned, you know? But, but the point is, they're savvy to technology, aren't they? This is, this is normal. It's intuitive. In fact, I love what Dr. Tony Campolo once said, sociologist from Eastern College. He said, I don't think we're living in a generation of bad kids. I think we're living in a generation of kids who know too much too soon. Interesting. So you would agree, would you not? We are overexposed to information way earlier than we're ready to apply it. But second... We today are underexposed to real-life experiences far later than we're ready. I'm, not ta I'm talking about kids and adults, but I'll go back to the kids for a minute. Kids 100 years ago were experiencing life. In fact, they, in fact, the reason families were big families, like 12, 13 kids, they needed workers. True? I mean, today, if you had a large family, it would be an economic challenge on your hands because teenagers are consumers, not contributors. But the point is, 100 years ago, we all, I mean, four-year-olds had chores to do. I grew up 40, 50 years ago with chores at four years old, and I could hardly wait to throw papers at 12 years old and get a job at 16 years old. So there was real-life experience that happened earlier, but today, not so much, and it continues with us. We've got a lot up here between the ears, not so much here in our hands. And this overexposure, underexposure is causing a virtual maturity. We know a lot about something, so we think we've mastered it. 
I was talking to a teenager last week, and I said, well, you know a lot about that subject. He goes, oh, yeah, I totally mastered it. I said, really, how come? I watched six YouTube videos on it. Okay, well, there you go. There you're, you're a PhD in that one. You know what I mean? But, but it's how we think today. We just get so much coming at us, screaming at us, that we assume it's real. But it's not. I mean, call it knowledge. It's knowledge. But it doesn't equate to a maturity. Am I right about this? Information parades as action. We think it's real. We think it's real life. We think it's maturation. But it's fool's gold. It glistens like the real thing. But it might be worthless. I'm here to say that the challenge of the day is that artificial maturity naturally happens to us. We need to be intentional about creating authentic maturity in our lives. The result of all this, what I'm telling you, is at least fourfold. There may be bunches of other unattended consequences, but let me very quickly give you four unattended consequences of this artificial maturity thing going on today. By the way, let me warn you, I'm about to be graphic, okay? So fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to be very graphic, okay? Number one. Unattended consequence number one is simply this. Information without application causes spiritual constipation. You see why I warned you? Okay. I know this is very junior high-ish, but I'm simply saying lots coming in, but not much going out is not healthy for anybody. Am I right? Okay. So it is with intellectual. So it is with information. Lots coming in, not much going out. Once again, information parades as action, but we get stopped up. We get stuck. Number two, information without application causes volitional obesity. Now, I know that's not a term you use in everyday conversation. Let me explain. You know what your volition is, don't you? It's your will. To be strong volitionally means you have a strong will. I have noticed if you keep taking in knowledge and information, information that informs the way you act, but you do not act, you continue to take more in, but you don't do anything about it, it causes your will to be blubbery. And, pardon the graphic, obese. It's almost like too much food and not enough exercise. I'm sorry. You're going to be overweight. And sometimes I think our will gets soft and it's no longer strong. Have you, by the way, have you ever noticed this? I've noticed this in my own life. If I keep hearing stuff, but I do not do anything about it, my will actually gets weaker and weaker and weaker with each moment. Each time I have a chance to do something about it, I seem to have less resolve to do it. But converse is true too. If I continue to act on what I know, my will gets stronger. It's like a muscle. Salespeople understand this when they're trying to sell or be a vendor for products. In fact, I heard of one guy that operates by a two-not-three rule. Have you heard of this? It's a little shoe boutique up in the Northeast. He was out selling all the big shoe chains and selling shoes to, to ladies. And so somebody asked him, what's your secret? He goes, my secret is two-not-three. And when he was asked to explain, here is what he said. When a woman comes in to buy a pair of shoes, she can be overwhelmed. Am I right, ladies? You can get overwhelmed at a shoe store, okay? Oh, my gosh, I see this, and I see this, and I see this. And so he says, uh, would you like me to pick a couple of pairs off for you to try on? Absolutely. Let's do that one and that one. Well, she'll try the new, two new pairs of shoes on, and then she'll go, oh, my, 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 my. I see another pair over there. Can I try that one on? And he will say with a smile on his face, I'll be happy to go fetch that other pair for you. Which of the first two would you like me to take away? Now, his point is this. If I bring three pairs, four pairs, five pairs out, often it's so much information, we get paralyzed and we don't act at all and we don't buy anything. But just two, you might buy one or maybe both of those pairs. 
He's outselling every other shoe store in the area. He simply understands that we get overwhelmed with options, with information, with so much coming at us that we, that we get stuck. In fact, does this ever happen to you? I'll have a very busy day, maybe lots of information coming at email and text and tweets and everything else, just so much coming at me, that I'll go to a restaurant and I make the simplest decision of the day, ordering my meal. But the options are so much, I go, I don't know what to order. Do you ever get stuck in a restaurant? Just bring me whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You know, you, do, you want to say that to the waitress. But the point is this, your will has gotten weakened. It's gotten worn out. And I'm simply saying, I think it comes from a lot of data without action. The fourth, excuse me, the third unintended consequence is this. Information without application actually causes emotional problems. I meet a lot with psychologists today as, we, as I work on university campuses with young adults, with college students. And I'm hearing more and more counselors or therapists use a term. The term they're using today as they work with their clients is high arrogance, low self-esteem. Did you hear that? High arrogance, low self-esteem. Meaning, I know so much, I've gotten kind of cocky about it because I think I know it. And yet, deep down, I know I've done nothing about it. And so I feel hollow on the inside. And I sure don't want anybody to see that I've got nothing. And so I keep this veneer of arrogance and cockiness and conceit and pride and everything else. It's, but it's a veneer. It's a facade. Because I know deep down it might be artificial. The last unintended consequence is information without application causes intellectual challenges. It actually causes intellectual challenges. Now, it's not that you don't understand the information, but here's, here's what Herbert Simon said. I think he summed it up best. Catch this. Herbert Simon once said that a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Meaning if I, keep, I have so much coming at me, I can't act on it all. In fact, it's impossible to act on it all. So I get satisfied with just skimming the surface. My attention span gets much shorter. Sound familiar? In fact, I'm giving attention to so many things, I can't go deep on any one of them. I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I can know a lot about a lot of things. Excuse me, I know a little bit a lot of things. I got a thousand friends on Facebook, don't know any of them well. Two thousand people follow me on Twitter, don't know any of them at all. Now, I'm probably over-speaking, but you follow what I'm saying, don't you? We live in a day where there's so much, there is a plethora of knowledge and, of, and information available that somehow we've just gotten satisfied with knowing, not doing with just having it up here but never applying it or acting on it. Does this happen to you too? It happens to me all the time, and I hate it. And I realize now I've got to be intentional about fighting it. I'd rather consume just a little bit of information if possible and somehow flesh out how does it look in my life rather than taking in so much that I'm now loving the mental stimulation, I'm doing mental gymnastics and getting goosebumps, but it's all artificial. You don't see any fruit in my life. You don't see any byproducts of what I know. It's just a bunch of knowledge. Well, let me say the obvious. We can either get mad or get busy. But where our culture is going, somehow unwittingly, I don't think this is a bad thing, it's just we have to be aware of it. We have to be intentional about it. I'm thinking the information is not going away. We live in a day of technology and it's not going away, right? And we don't want it to go away. We love the speed and convenience with which we, we now enjoy our lives. But listen to me. It can do damage unless we handle it well. 
In fact, just listen to these two facts to convince you. Do you realize that this day, it happens to be Sunday, this day, a person living in New York City, picking up the New York Times, will consume more information in today's paper than someone living during the 19th century would consume their entire lives. Their entire lives. In fact, a person living in New York City today, over a two-week span of time, will encounter more people than a person living in medieval times would encounter their entire lives. This is the day we live in. And I don't know if you feel it living where you are, but you know I'm right, don't you, that this is a day where speed and convenience and more information is coming at us, swirling about us, and we've got to make a decision on how to handle it. So, I believe that we need to handle this information well, and the best way to start, I think, is with Scripture. I want to look now at three passages of Scripture that I believe will inform us on how to understand and then react or respond to this day we live in. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up first to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the New Testament. And by the way, if you don't have your Bible, don't sweat it. We're going to put this passage up on the screen. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we're, we're going to read where the Apostle Paul addresses this very issue in the Corinthian people. Now, let me give you some background real quick. You know that Corinth was in Greece. And it was, as a Greek town, a, a, a well, you know the Greeks loved knowledge. They had their own version of the information age. They loved knowledge. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says, for the Greeks love knowledge. They love new ideas. So they were just loving to consume any new concept that came out. Sound familiar? But Paul wrote the people attending the Corinthian church in Greece and wrote these words. Here's what he wrote, starting with verse 1. And I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, or worldly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, notice that, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Now, it's interesting that he would use those terms. Paul addressed these Corinthian people, adults, mind you, as babies, not mature, drinking milk, not solid food, as unstable, not stable. And listen, the problem he's accusing them of was not that they didn't know enough. It's just that they didn't do anything, that they, uh, uh, anything about what they knew. And that's our problem. We know all the right answers. If I ask any of you, uh, you, oh, I know that, I know that, I know that. In fact, I work a lot with NCAA Division I athletic programs and actually three pro baseball teams. We work with athletes quite a bit in, in my organization. The coaches that work with these student athletes, these young ball players, say the phrase that they hear all the time for these young players are, I know, 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 I know. And they're going, well, they probably know up here, but, but do you do anything about it? no but I watch YouTube videos on it. You know, I mean, it, it, it boils down to I'm just consuming more information. And I love the way he ended this text we just read. Verse 3, are you not walking like mere men? Do you know what he meant by that? He was simply saying, I can't tell the difference between your life and those people out there that don't even claim to follow Christ. Now, I'm not trying to give you a spiritual spanking, but would someone look at you or me that way and say, I don't know, between Sundays, I cannot tell the difference. You don't look any different at all. Now, with that tucked away in your mind, let's look at another passage. 
the writer of the book of Hebrews goes further with the same concept. So if you turn to the book of Hebrews, further back toward the right in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to start reading with verse 12, where the writer talks about infants and mature, and here is what he says in Hebrews 5. He writes, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need, oh, there it is again, milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of, okay, say the word, because of what? Practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now he continues, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let's press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, did you notice these people have a lot in common? He talks about the infant and the mature again, the milk and the solid food. But he goes further here. Did you notice he kind of describes milk and solid food for us? And did you happen to notice, as you read that text with me, that the list you would make that falls into the milk category are primarily items that we would call instructional in nature. You get instruction about them. In fact, he even said that. Instruction about washing. Instruction about eternal judgment. It's teaching. It's information. The items you would list under the meat or solid food category, did you notice? It was application in nature. In fact, you said the word with me. Who by reason of practice had their senses trained. Listen, unlike what we typically think, meat is not just deeper teaching. I'm telling you, folks, I have talked to so many people over the years as a, as a teacher and a pastor that would say, you know, you know, Brother Tim, I think I'm going to change churches. I think I'm just going to change churches. <laughs> oh, really? How come? Because I want to go where they preach the meat of the Word of God. <laughs> it happens down south a lot, you can tell, okay? <laughs> now, you've probably seen them on TV, by the way, have you not? Okay. Now, you know what they're really saying? They're saying, I want to go deeper in my mental stimulation. I want to split the Greek and Hebrew words and find out the deeper meanings of those words. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if you're doing something about it, if you're getting up off your bottom and actually doing it. But if you just want more mental gymnastics, that's an American idea. That's not a Bible idea. If you're taking notes, that's an American culture thing, not a Bible thing. In this text we just read, he said meat is doing the milk who by reason of practice are now being trained. you got all this instruction, and thank God you do. you got a lot up here. Now I'm asking you to, to get beyond that and actually flesh it out. Do it. And you'll find that depth comes in your life, not by getting a better verse, but by doing the verse you know. Hello? So, I struggle with this. Because I like to be stimulated. I like to come on Sunday mornings, get goosebumps on my arm and get inspired. And of course that's okay. There's nothing wrong. And keep coming. But when you get up, say, what is one thing I'm going to do? Because I tell you what, maturation, in fact, maturation and all kinds of wisdom come through practice, not just through more consumption. I love what Jesus said about this. Jesus himself was addressing this very issue in the book of John chapter 7. We won't read it on the screens, but listen, I'm going to paraphrase what he said. He had a bunch of people following him at one point in his earthly ministry. And these people were questioning whether he was really from God or not. They weren't really sure. 
And Jesus turns to these questioning people, and here's what he says. He says, if anybody will do my teaching, then he will know whether it's from God or not. Now, isn't that backwards from what we normally want? We want to say just the opposite. We want to say, God, lay it all on me. Give me all the information. I'll weigh it out, and then I'll tell you if I want to do it. I mean, that makes logical sense. And God says, no, I'm sorry. I love you. And because I love you, my kingdom is built on trust and faith. I'll give you a little bit of information. And if you'll get up and do it, you'll have confirmation that it's for me. You'll have peace on the inside. You'll know. And by the way, when you act on the light that you do have, I actually give you more light. You act on the words I give you, I give you more words. But if you won't act on it, you got to do it first. That's so upside down to us. And maybe that's why we don't go deeper in the kingdom. Maybe it's why we don't go deeper. I think we're good people in this room today. I think I'm a good person. I think. But by, by and large, along the way, we just get satisfied with knowing, not doing. I have a friend named Russ. I think I've mentioned him before. I've known him for three decades now. Russ, for a while during his life, during his career, would do seminars in churches called Knowing the Will of God. Of course, it was always a big group because everybody wants to know the will of God. So one Saturday morning, he's in a church, and it's a packed house. And before he starts teaching anything, he says, now, I just want to ask you a quick question before I, be before I begin. He said, how many of you have come this morning, and you've said to yourself, even before I know the will of God, I'm already committed to doing it? In other words, as soon as I find out, I've already made my decision. I'm going to obey God. I'm just going to do it. I'm committed. And about half the crowd that morning raised their hand. And then with a big smile on his face, he said, well, okay, thank you. Seminar's over. And they go, what, 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 what? You, could saw, you saw puzzled faces of the audience. And then he explained. He said, the reason the seminar's over is you don't need it. He said, you just, you just raised your hand. He, you're already going to find out. You don't need me to teach you because God said he's going to reveal it to you if you're committed to doing it. And the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, he's never going to tell you anybody because you're not committed to doing it. So the seminar's over. <laughs> wow. A little bit of ouch there. Now, I'm simply saying that's how he works. So, quickly, let me just ask you one application question. Is there something you know to do right now? Maybe you've known for years and you've not done anything about it, and you're wondering why God doesn't speak to you anymore, or doesn't speak as much, or doesn't say much. I'm wondering. Maybe it's us, not him. Maybe we've just consumed all this information, and God's saying, stop seeking any more advice. You already know what to do. I'm just saying. There's one more passage I want to look at real quick. It's found in the book of Luke, chapter 6. This is where Jesus, again, himself is speaking about this issue, and he lays it out so clearly, he puts a punctuation mark at the end of the subject. Luke, chapter 6, starting with verse 46, I want you to follow with me as I read. He says, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Stop for just a second. Isn't that a great question, by the way? Shall we keep moving so it doesn't get awkward in here? He's basically saying, how come you keep calling me master, master, Lord, Lord, as if I'm in charge and you're not and you're willing to do what I tell you and you don't do what I tell you? Don't call me that or do it. He keeps going. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and, watch this, acts on them, I'm going to show you who he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, he's like a man who built a house 
on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, these two builders have a lot in common. They're both builders. They both built a house. They both had storms. By the way, the issue is not, will you have a storm? We're all going to get storms. The big difference was only one thing. One of those men stopped at merely information. The other one would not be satisfied until he got to application. I'm going to take what I know, and I'm actually going to practice it. And Jesus said, that's the foundation. The foundation isn't more Bible knowledge, although that's good. The foundation is you do the knowledge. You actually flesh it out. Now, many of you in this room know that the New Testament, the New Testament was written primarily in the Greek language. There's some Aramaic, but it's primarily the ancient Greek language. And the Greek language was very flowery. Lots of words for our single word in English. In fact, there were four or five words for love, and we just have love. I love ice cream, love my wife, love... They, they had many words. Their word for knowledge is very insightful. In fact, it might inform us today on wh- what we need to do. They had two words for knowledge, where well, we just say the word in English, knowledge, that explain exactly what I'm talking to you about. I want to put them on the screens. The first word for knowledge is the word gnosko. In fact, it's where we've got a word Gnostic or Gnosticism. Ever heard of that? Where knowledge is king. Gnosko simply means to be informed, to become acquainted with. And it results in an informed person, someone who has information. The second word for knowledge is the word oida. It's transliterated into English, oida. And it means to fully perceive and understand through experience. And it results in wisdom. I guess my big question is, are you a person full of information or full of wisdom? Do you apply the knowledge to your life and it fleshes out and people now seek you out because you seem to have an intuitive sense about how to live your life? Oida and Gnosko are the two words for knowledge. Can I say the obvious now? Our world is full of Gnosko, not so much Oida. Am I right? Oh my goodness, is Oida rare? And that's what I'm talking about. Authentic maturity is Oida. Artificial maturity is just a whole lot of gnosko. I got a lot up here between my ears. Now, let me illustrate very briefly. Um, I think I've mentioned before that I'm a nut about baseball. I love sports in general, but um, about 25 or so years ago, I had a very good friend named Jeff Robinson. Jeff Robinson played baseball in high school and college, and then he was good enough to be drafted into the pros. And many of you know his name because he got drafted and ended up playing for the Detroit Tigers during the late 80s and early 90s. And because we were buds, Jeff would often, when he was pitching, invite me out to stay with him in his condo here in Detroit, and then I would go to the ballpark with him early on, watch him warm up, and then pitch. And it was so much fun. I was like a little kid. Well, one day we'd go out to the ballpark, and Jeff's warming up in the bullpen, and I'm just leading on the, on the fence, and I'm just enjoying life. It's awesome. Well, as I'm watching my friend warm up in the bullpen, this other fan, whom neither one of us know, stands up about 15 feet away from me and starts yelling at Jeff Robinson. He wants a baseball. He wants an autographed baseball. Hey, Robinson, throw me a baseball. Well, Jeff's not paying any attention to him. He's warming up in the bullpen before a big game. But this guy keeps incessantly yelling out his name. And then he decides he's going to impress Jeff with all the stats he knows about him. So he starts rattling off his one-loss record from the last year, his ERA, strikeouts, base on balls. He, he rattles it off as if to talk Jeff into, well, this guy must know me. I'm going to give him a baseball. Well, he goes on for 15 minutes. I'm getting annoyed. I'm, I'm trying to be nice, but I'm just wanting to say, just be quiet and watch the guy pitch. But 
In any case, after about 15 minutes, Jeff gets done warming up. And it was at that point he reached into a bucket, pulls out a baseball, grabs a Sharpie pen, and walks over our way. I'm certain this other guy thought, okay, I win. He caved. He's going to sign a baseball and give it to me now. Little did he know what was about to happen. Jeff walks over, stands in between both of us about evenly. He signs the baseball, smiles at this guy, and hands the ball to me. (laughs) I took a bow and walked away. It was awesome. It was just awesome. Now, what happened in that moment? I know exactly what happened. I can explain it with two words. That guy had a lot of gnosko about Jeff Robinson. Knew all the stats. I knew Jeff Robinson with OIDA. I'd experienced Jeff Robinson. All I'm simply saying today is, that's what's valuable. That's not the counterfeit. That's the real deal. And even now, can I just ask you a question? Do you have a lot of gnosko about God? Or do you OIDA God? You've experienced him. You have a living, growing, vital relationship with him that causes you to go deeper with every day. And life becomes an adventure. Pardon the old-fashioned word. A thrill. Because you walk with him. Run with him daily. Experiencing the real thing. Or is it just, I know a lot of Bible verses. I tell you, I think the marks of true maturity are behavior in orientation. Orientation. In fact, very quickly, before I kind of wrap things up and give you a step of application, let me just give you what I consider to be the marks of maturity, authentic maturity. There's probably 700. I'm going to give you seven very quickly. Here they are. Mark maturity number one. We are able to make and keep long-term commitments. The will inside of us is robust enough that we can make a commitment and keep a long-term commitment. When the glitz and glamour are gone, is gone we're still there. By the way, when you see, by the way, can I make this obvious? When you see a kid able to make a long commitment, don't you say, hmm, that kid's mature. Don't you think that? It's a mark of maturity. Number two, they are unshaken by either flattery or criticism. In other words, when flattery or great remarks come or criticism and horrible remarks come their way, they weigh them out, they take them in, but they're, they're not shaken by either one. They're not moved by either one. They can consume what's, what's worthwhile, make any adjustments, but they're still steadily moving forward in their life. That's a mark of maturity. I think an immature person is thrown by the other two. Here's another one, number three. Humility. I think a mark of maturity is someone, young or old, that would say, I see a bigger picture, way bigger than me, and my life isn't about me, it's about something much larger, and I play a role, but I'm humble enough to admit it and to acknowledge it. And I see people far wiser than me, far more gifted than me, and I'm good with that. I'm humble about it. I can praise other people. I can affirm other people. That's a mark of maturity, especially when I see it in a young person. I work with my my own kids on this for 20 years now. That's part of maturity. Number three, their decisions are based upon character, not feelings. The whims of any given day don't sway them, but they're making their decisions based on principles that they buy into and character. And the foundation is strong because they're making them off those principles. And it's not this who knows what might happen the next day based on their decisions. Next one, gratitude. I believe a true mark of an authentically mature person is they're extremely grateful people. They're not in denial. Some bad things have happened, but they choose to focus on the good things that have happened in their life, the, the blessings that God's brought and that other people brought into their life, and they're just, they're good with that, and they've chosen 
to be grateful people. I think grateful people are mature people, by and large. Next one. They prioritize others and others' agenda before their own. And I'm not suggesting they're codependent or they're just wimps or doormats, but their lives aren't just about their own agenda, but they've just chosen to, to focus on the lives of others and to be able to serve other people gratefully, liberally, generously because of that. And then finally, mark number seven. They seek wisdom from God and from other wise counsel in decision-making time. They think it's pretty arrogant to think that they would have all the answers, and so they're clearly and openly seeking wisdom from God, connection from God, their maker, and then from others who are wise, who know God well, who know them well, before they make big decisions. I simply think those are, those are a list of marks that make up a mature person. So here's the application today. Let's, let's boil it down to what will we do with all this information I've just given you. Number one, I kind of posed it to you just a second ago, but let me really drill down now. As you sit here listening to me today, has something come across your mind that you thought, I knew I should have done something about that years ago maybe, months ago, weeks ago, whatever, and yet you've chosen to keep getting advice, getting more information, but yet you've been paralyzed. You've not done anything about it. And you know that right now, maybe the Spirit of God is poking you and saying, you need to do something about that. You don't need to learn anymore. You know enough. Go do it. What is it in your life that you know you need to do that. I won't go long on this, but kind of give you a real quick snippet of what can happen. You can have some of the most amazing breakthroughs with one simple step of obedience. One act, simple act, small act, can turn everything around. I remember um, years ago when I was pastoring in San Diego, um, at the end of the service, there was a song we sang, and I just invited people that wanted to, to come forward and just pray up front, just kind of kneel down and do business with God. One woman came forward named Ruth. I knew Ruth. She was a friend. But she came down to pray immediately, and I knew something was up. So I kind of walked around the front, and I knelt down next to her, and I said, Ruth, what's going on? And she looked up at me with tears in her, uh, in her eyes, and she said, Tim, I've, I've been diagnosed with a tumor, and it's pretty large. And she said, I'm not sure if it's malignant or benign, but it's a tumor, and I'm scared to death. And I said, Ruth, let's pray together. And so we both bowed, and we prayed right then and there. And while I was praying, something happened to me. I wish I could tell you it happened all the time. It doesn't. But on that particular instance, God gave me a word. In fact, the word was letter. L-E-T-T-E-R, letter, like a letter you mail. And so when I got done praying, I said, Ruth, can I say something to you? I said, this is going to sound really random. And in fact, it may make no sense at all to you. But does the word letter mean anything to you? She immediately said, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't, know what, I, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, I know we're praying about your tumor, but I feel like God just told me the word letter. You, you sure it means nothing, nothing at all? A letter you need to send, a letter that was sent to you, anything. And she paused for a minute, and then she said, oh, oh, oh. And after the third oh, she looked up at me. She said, I actually have a letter in my purse. I wonder if that's it. I said, well, what is the letter? She said, well, it's been there for three years. I said, that might be it. What is it? <laughs> And she said, well, I have not spoken to my sister for three years. They're grown women, but they've not talked. They had a spat at a Christmas celebration, and they've not talked for three years. She said about three years ago, right after it happened, I wrote her a letter just seeking her forgiveness and saying, life's too short to not make this right. I want to make it right. 
But she said, my sister did another really stupid thing right after I wrote that letter, and so I just tucked it in my purse, and I didn't mail it. She said, do you think maybe I'm supposed to mail it? And I said, Ruth, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to suggest as your friend, you mail that letter. I said, minimally, it's going to help, at least help your relationship with your sister. Well, Ruth sent that letter off, and listen to me, not only did it completely mend her relationship with her sister. I think both of them were just waiting for the first person to take a step. It mended her relationship with her sister. But the next time I saw Ruth, which was two weeks later, Ruth came up to me and she said, Tim, I saw the doctors. My tumor has evaporated. It's gone. They can't find it. And there was no other explanation. They didn't do any testing. They didn't do any medication. They didn't do anything. Except that she took a simple act of obedience to God by mailing a letter. Is there anything that you should have done, need to do, that you just have put off and gotten busy with more information. Secondly, we have people every week that are here that would say if they were honest, I've never taken that first step of action, that first action step, to say yes to Jesus Christ. I know a lot about church, I know a lot about the Bible, but I've never stepped over the line of faith and said, Jesus, come into my life and take over my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I want to know you. And I want to know that if I died tonight, God forbid, I would go to heaven. You know, the scripture says you can know that, but you know what it requires? Not more gnosko. It requires oida. You don't need to know more about God. He wants you to experience him. And you start by simply saying a prayer where you honestly, you invite him to come in and say, God, I want to belong to you and I want you to belong to me. If that's you today, in just a minute, I want to pray. In fact, I'm going to pray phrase by phrase a simple prayer that I prayed years ago when I first said yes to God. And if it expresses the desire of your heart today, I want you to pray it with me, just right where you're seated, just you and God. And uh, I'd like you to begin this journey and experience the adventure I'm talking about. Do you realize this is the key? This is the key to maturation. This is the key to turning artificial maturity into authentic maturity. Uh, just suppose for a minute, just suppose something. Suppose that, um, that you worked for me. I know that would be a stretch of your imagination, but let's just say you're one of my employees. And I tell you one day, I'm going to put you in charge of the office. I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I'm going to be overseas. But don't worry. I know you don't feel ready, but I'm going to write you an email every day and give you instructions, give you encouragement. You're going to be fine. So you go, okay, go. I take off. I'm gone for two weeks, but every day, just like I promised, I email you. When I return home, I'm so excited to see you and the team, but I'm, I'm flabbergasted when I walk into the office and I realize the shrubs are overgrown. The grass has grown tall. I walk inside. There's trash everywhere. I look at the workload. Nothing has been done. I finally find you in the back room with all the team members just sitting around, just having a good time, sitting around. And I'm thinking, what are you doing back here? Oh, Tim, welcome back. Glad. To How was your trip? How was your trip? It was great, but what happened here? Well, <laughs> we have kept everything safe. We really have. It's been great. But, but, but wait, I say. Wait, 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 wait. Did you not get my instructions every day? Did you not get my emails? Oh, we got the emails. We love your emails. In fact, we love them so much, every Tuesday we had an email study. Yes, we did. An email study, and we studied the paragraphs. In fact, some of them memorized sentences of your emails. They were awesome. Kenny says he gets goosebumps every time he reads your emails. It's amazing. And I say, but did you do anything about them? Do something. We didn't know you wanted to do anything with them. Yes, that's what I wanted. And that's what I wonder if God's saying to us lovingly as our Heavenly Father, would you please go try it out? Let's pray. Father, 
I'm just asking now, first of all, for that first group of people. As they sit here today, if there is one item that they put off obeying, they put off practicing or doing, and they know they need to, they've just been scared or too preoccupied with other things. Holy Spirit, put your finger on it right now in our hearts and poke us and prod us to do what we need to do. God, help us to see that breakthrough we've been needing in our lives. And now with your heads bowed, I'm going to pray that prayer I told you about. If you're here today and you've never taken that big step to just say yes, I want you to repeat this prayer after me, phrase by phrase. Dear Lord, I do want to know you. I want to turn my gnosko into oida. Lord, I thank you for coming to the earth and dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Right now, I invite you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord. Lord, I want to experience you. Thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now make me the kind of person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one last thing. Before you leave, if you just prayed that prayer with me, the most exciting and the best decision you'll ever make in your life. And I want you to take your program out. This is kind of important. Inside your program, there's a little flap that's got two orange ribbons on it at the top and the bottom. It's the one you can tear out. What I'd like you to do, if you just prayed that prayer with me, if you'll just fill it out, give us your contact info. There's a reason for this. And then if you'll just check that little circle at the bottom that says, today I prayed to receive Christ into my life for the first time. We'd love to send you some stuff that will help you get started in your relationship with God. And we'd love to invite you to starting point where you actually get to experience God and figure out how he wants to relate to you. I love you guys. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a great week.